Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're into extra time. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the programme this week are the Silver Ferns. Commonwealth Games hopes up the Daintree without a paddle. We continue our countdown to Joseph Parker's unification bout against Anthony Joshua. The West Coast man bids to get Martin Crowe's cricket gear back home. We catch up with the high-flying pole vaulter Olivia McTaggart. And we also talk with top-flight mountain biker Casey Brown, who returns to New Zealand as part of the Crank Works World Tour. The Silver Ferns have won a medal at every Commonwealth game since netball was introduced in Kuala Lumpur in 1998. Two gold and three silver medals. But the nervous talk around this year's games has been whether the Silver Ferns can even make the final this time given they've struggled against Australia and England in the past year. But given the eight-goal loss to Jamaica in the Tiny Jamison series on Thursday night, there's a real prospect they could even miss out on a medal altogether. We're joined now by reporter Bridget Tunnicliffe. Bridget, where does this result leave the Silver Ferns? Well, you've got to wonder what it does to their confidence. Um, confidence must have been pretty low already after the um, Quad Series tour at um in England and South Africa, of course, they lost to England. And last year, they lost to England a couple of times and also to Australia on several occasions. So last night was an opportunity to try and gain some kind of momentum. But they, yeah, 10 goals against Jamaica. Um, it's a huge concern and it does nothing to fill any confidence among um, netball fans. And, yeah, the Silver Ferns are pretty vulnerable right now. If you're England and Jamaica, um, you'll be... Uh, seeing this as a prime opportunity at the Com Games to finally make a, a final of a pinnacle event. I mean, the, the Silver Ferns talked a fair bit about how they were going to recover after that, that quad series that you talked about. It would seem on the face of it or that they've gone backwards rather than forwards. Yeah, um, I do think I have been slightly heartened by Shannon Francois's performances so far. I think that she has been better, and she's actually picking up quite a bit of ball on defence. But, yeah, again, it just seems to be the connections. When you look at the Silver Ferns players individually, uh, we've got some incredible talent. Um, you just look at someone like Timalesi Fakakatao. She's still pretty new, but she, she, the things that she can do on the netball court are incredible. You've got someone like Maria Falau, who, <clears throat> excuse me, Falau, who's you know one of the best shooters in the world. Um, Grace Cara, her her feed, her passes are incredible. But what that tells me is it's come down to connections, and to me, that's the job of the coach. The coach has the overview and. It's really her job to try and get some fluidity. I think a, a big factor they, they seem to struggle with is simply the height with the likes of Ramel Drake and, and battling that. Is, you've talked there about Timolesi Whakahukato. They, I mean, they seem to lack real height, don't they, the, the defensively and possibly uh, the attacking into the court. And, and combating someone like Ramel Drake can seems, uh, well, on the face of it, nigh impossible. Oh, I mean, it's an extremely difficult task. I mean, Kelly Jury is a 
about as tall as they come for defenders. Um, but she's still pretty green. She's um, hasn't been around for that long. Um, to be honest, I'm kind of surprised that Jamaica hasn't been able to pull off more of these upsets in the past. I think they've just been <clears throat> disorganised. And from a um, game management point of view, they've been ill-disciplined, disorganised. But I think um, Nepal, Jamaica, the authorities there have, uh, have started to... Um, they've they've realised this and they've finally got a, a coach who is implementing some um, high-performance programmes. Um, so Jamaica are going to be more dangerous now. Um, but, yeah, I'm surprised they haven't done this before. The other benefit, presumably for Jamaica, is they've got several players that are playing either in the New Zealand or the Australian domestic competition. Yeah, and that's the same for England. Um, there, are, I mean, the goalkeeper last night uh, for Jamaica, she she was incredible. I'm surprised. I won't be surprised if someone picks up her signature, either in Australia or New Zealand for next year. So they've they've even got players there that um, you know, probably should be. They they're more than capable of playing down here. Um, yeah, England have something like nine or ten players that are playing in either. Um, uh, sorry, that are playing in New Zealand and Australia. So the, it's taken away the, um, the... There's no intimidation factor anymore. They're just not afraid of us anymore. Big test, presumably, for Janine South become these these games as to whether she can hold on to the job, presumably, then. Yeah, I mean, if we don't make the final, that's a very... Um, uh, that's, that's a very realistic uh, prospect. Um, I just think New Zealand netball will feel under... A, enormous amount of pressure to get rid of her basically um, the obvious choice would be Noling Tauroa and that would make everyone happy but she's recently re-signed for another year um, with the Sunshine Coast Lightning in Australia so I don't see who the obvious successor would be without it with, with it not being Noling Tauroa would they try and would they get someone in just for one year until Noling is available the year after um yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what their options are there. You mentioned there about simply getting to the, the final, but that result against Jamaica would suggest winning winning a medal may, may not even be um, a, a, a definite outcome. I mean, if you've got Australia, England and Jamaica, possibly filling the top three. Yeah, so um, we've got a really crucial game with England in the early rounds of the Commonwealth Games. We're in the same pool as England, and whoever loses that game is likely to pay, play Australia in the semi-finals. So England and New Zealand will both be desperate to win that game, so they avoid Australia in the semi-finals. But yeah, that could easily be um, that could easily be New Zealand. Let's say we do have to play Australia in that semi, we lose, and then we probably meet Jamaica to play off for a bronze medal, and based on last night, well, that's not a guarantee. Right, well, it's just over a week till Auckland boxer Joseph Parker has the biggest fight of his life. Parker will fight Britain's Anthony Joshua in a world heavyweight unification bout in Cardiff on Easter Sunday morning. Parker holds the WBO title and Joshua the WBA title. Clay Wilson, who will be in Cardiff covering the fight for RNZ, has spoken with the BBC's boxing correspondent Mike Costello and asked him just how serious Parker is being taken as a contender in Britain. The atmosphere building up to this fight is much closer to the fervour that was in the air before the Klitschko fight than was there for the Takan fight, partly because of the legendary status of Klitschko, who'd been around for so long, and there were questions as to did he have one more big night in him. But also Carlos Takan was a late substitute, and so any great frenzy around the fight 
had kind of dimmed in the 10, 11 days beforehand when the substitute was called in. But what's really interesting about this fight, and I was talking to the promoter Eddie Hearn about this just a couple of days ago, is that quite often in this country, when tickets are bought, all that they talk about is the Joshua fight. It doesn't matter who's rising from the opposite stall. It's just about Anthony Joshua. But this time, partly because there's not so much known about Joseph Parker over here, so there's a bit of mystery and mystique about him, but also because there's another world championship belt involved. This is definitely the Joshua versus Parker fight. When people are talking to each other, you know, whether it's in bars or on the streets, and they're saying, are you going to the Joshua fight? Now they're talking about, are you going to Joshua Parker? The second name is involved in the conversations here, and that's rare for a Joshua fight, but it also underlines how people here do sense that Joseph Parker, outside of Vladimir Klitschko, potentially could give Joshua his toughest challenge yet since he became world champion. There's been a lot said in the build-up to this fight to get it uh, across the line, um, to to build it up. What have people in the UK made of the build-up from both sides of the ledger? I think what they're getting used to now with Anthony Joshua is that he's pretty impossible to rile. Every now and again, you'll see a random tweet that gives you the impression he might just be losing his call. But then he reverts to type. And we were with him yesterday at his training camp in Sheffield in the north of England, where he spends all of his time and has done all the way back to preparing for the Olympic Games as an amateur back when he won the gold at London 2012. And he just seemed so relaxed. He did at least six hours relentlessly of interviews with TV, radio, online reporters, newspaper reporters, across the day and yet he seemed as fresh towards the end of it as he did at the beginning of it. He broke off to do a bit of training, broke off to have some food but there is just this sense that Anthony Joshua is impossible to rile and there was this controversy, if that's what it could be called, but really that has to go in inverted commas, around the time that the fight was announced and we went to the original press conference as to the Joseph Parker comment about Anthony Joshua being on steroids but you know, we quickly quickly realised that that didn't really have any substance. That you know, he he was misguided in saying that. He actually said that to me in an interview at the press conference. And so, there hasn't been any of the animosity that's often in attendance at big heavyweight fights. But then there wasn't in the build-up to the fight between Joshua and Klitschko, and that produced a record crowd with record pay-per-view figures here in the UK and produced a fantastic contest as well. And Joshua himself has told me that this, without question, is his toughest challenge since then. And that the, the growing feeling is that if Joseph Parker should get Joshua in trouble in the way that Klitschko did, because he's so much younger and fresher and fitter, the feeling is that Joseph Parker will follow up. And then the question is, how will Anthony Joshua deal with a second incendiary attack and so there are many fascinating elements attached to this but there's very little in the way of controversy and the sense is it doesn't need it that's the bbc's boxing correspondent mike costello talking to clay wilson Items from the career of the late great New Zealand cricketer martin crow will go under the hammer in a divorce auction in sydney next month and West Coast sports fan Adam Gilsonen's hoping to get his hands on them so that they can go to the National Cricket Museum in Wellington. 
Now, actor Russell Crowe's holding an art of divorce auction, having split with his wife, Danielle Spence, with about $5 million worth of items being sold, ranging from the chariot he used in the movie Gladiator to artwork and cars. Among the items is the bat Martin Crowe scored his last test century with against England and Old Trafford in 1994. Adam Gilson set up a Give a Little Page to fund his bid, and I asked him what motivated him to get involved. Growing up in the 80s was was a wonderful era for New Zealand cricket and Martin was at the forefront of that um, with some other very special cricketers as well so I guess when you're growing up you have sporting heroes and, and Martin was definitely one of them for me so just to think of these wonderful pieces being carved up in an auction and going to private collectors you know, all around the world was such a shame and, and knowing Jamie at the museum would, you know, wanted some help I thought well that's something we can all do we can all get in together as a nation um, you know, try and get a, a bit of a fighting fund if you like together and let's go to auction and see if we can bring some of these pieces back. Are you disappointed it's being auctioned at all? I mean, Mrs Russell Crowe, Martin Crowe's cousin, you'd think he might have decided to perhaps offer them to the, the Cricket Museum himself. Well, that would have been lovely. I guess when it comes to a divorce, and this is what it's all about, it's, it's all about divvying up assets, I suppose. I, I see his ex-wife also has some jewellery available um, through the auction. So I, I saw a story this morning, actually, where... Uh, it said Martin wanted to sell the stuff back in 2006 to an auction house in Sydney, and that's what Martin went over to Sydney to do that. And he was staying at Russell's house that weekend, and Russell said, "I'll pay you twice as much as what it's worth." And so, he, so he bought everything. But he also said to Martin, "And if I ever, if it ever gets sold, I'll, I'll pay you half of the the profit." So what he, what Russell said, look, anything that's made from this, any extra, is actually going to go to Martin's daughter Emma. So I guess if Martin had sold it uh, privately would never have had a chance to see this. So I think Russell Crowe, to be fair, is actually doing us a bit of a favour by um, giving us a chance because it might never have gone if he hadn't have bought it. Yes, it would have been nice, absolutely, to donate it to the um, museum or to you know to get it back to New Zealand somehow. But I guess indirectly this way, we've, we've got a chance. So I guess um, that's what we're trying to do and that's what we're going to focus on doing. And the people of New Zealand and, and around the world, actually, we've had donations on that page so far are getting it behind it. Yeah, in the scheme of things, though, isn't it? Well, we're talking sort of, well, the estimate's around about $4,000, but, I mean, and the auction itself is expected to raise something like $5 million. so in the scheme of things, it's, hard, <laughs> it's hardly big dollars for, for Russell Crowe, is it? I know. I, I guess when lawyers are involved, they might say, right, you know, Mr and Mrs Crowe, everything's going in the pot, and we're going to divvy up everything um, regardless. So it is what it is, I mean, and that's not for me to judge what they're doing. All I'm, all I'm really focusing on is trying to do what we're doing with this, give a little page. You make an approach to them at all? I wouldn't know how to. I'm just down here in Greyhouse. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know how to get in touch with them. To be fair, if someone else wanted to. You know, maybe you'd be able to withdraw it from the auction and, and donate it. That would be wonderful. Is there anything in particular that that you'd really like to see back here? The bat that he scored his 17th and final Test century at Old Trafford uh, is the one we'd want. We also would love the bat that he scored um, his second century that, um, at Lords. He scored two centuries at Lords, so there's that bat. And that was on the '94 um, tour as well. Um, we've got the cricket blazer he had um, when he toured Australia in 82-83, the one-day shirt and cap um, during the 1992 Cricket World Cup, which New Zealand did so well. And also there's a, a one-day cricket shirt that he wore in the 1995 series. It was the, um, I think it was the cricket centenary. Luckily for us, the bat that we really want is the first item up. It's lot 103, followed by the second bat. So it's good that they are the first two rather than the last two, otherwise it would have been a bit of a juggle to work out how we go. So I think we've got a good chance of at least getting a couple of things, uh, if not all five.
I was talking to Adam Gilshnan, and that auction is at South Beast in Sydney, and it's on April the 7th. The Auckland poll voter Olivia McTaggart's hoping to be back vaulting again next week after injury disrupted her preparations for the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. The 18-year-old injured her ankle in the warm-ups for the national champs a fortnight ago, and she also missed the vertical pursuit event in Auckland last weekend. McTaggart's chasing Eliza McCartney up the pole vault world rankings, having bettered the Olympic bronze medalist secondary school's record last year. She spoke to Barry Guy about the injury and her recovery. It's going really well now. I'm walking on it, starting to jog in it. So I've got a really good team behind me, and I think it will definitely be all right for the, for the Games. So that, there's obviously limited things. Not not ide- ideal for you? It's, it's definitely not ideal, but, I mean, I bounce back pretty quickly still young so I'm feeling good about the games and um, it's definitely going to be alright. What are your, perhaps with your ankle injury in mind, what are your sort of expectations at the games? I think my expectations haven't really changed as much from before I did my ankle injury. I think the main thing is top six at the games now that it's a straight final um, my sort of goal before that was to get into the finals but now it's a straight final. It's basically just doing my best and getting that top six hopefully. So I'm ranked eighth at the moment, but I have been a few of the Aussies um, at a few comps recently. So we'll see what happens there. It all comes down to the day. Have you learned much from uh, Eliza and what's happened to her in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, definitely when it comes down to the um, injury point of view, like she's had a foot injury lately as well in her Achilles. And I think seeing her get through that and us having the same physio has been really good. And it's just learning off her and seeing how she copes with everything and how I can do that as well, and especially going to a big meet. She's been through all of that, so it's good to talk to her about that. When's the plan for you to actually be, uh, you know, getting up over the over the pole but ahead of the Games because of your injury? Yeah, so fingers crossed for next week. Um, so I go into the pre-camp in Hastings next week, so I'll get probably two to three bolt sessions in then. So I'm feeling good about it, not worried about it at all. So I've got my physio over there with me, so yeah. That's Olivia McTaggart talking to Barry Guy. And Olivia's brother Cameron's also competing at the Commonwealth Games. He's in the weightlifting. The Canadian mountain bike star Casey Brown's back in the country where she was raised, competing in the Crankworx World Tour stop in Rotorua. Growing up the youngest of five on a 300-acre farm on the west coast, Brown was quick to take to an outdoor lifestyle that included herding sheep and riding horses. Her father, a Canadian, moved back to Rivelstoke in Canada when she was young and Brown followed suit when she was 11 years old. Her mother and sister remain in New Zealand and live in Clyde. Brown was crowned the Queen of Crankworks, a world tour event consisting of 15 competitions taking place around the globe. That was in 2014 and she finished runner-up in 2016. Joe Porter caught up with the Kiwi Canadian about her mountain biking journey. We lived on the west coast of the South Island, a place called Barn Bay, just south of Jackson's Bay kind of remote area and then we moved inland to Clyde and we also lived in Hauia for a bit. That would have given you no doubt a love for the outdoors as a youngster being down on the rugged west coast? Oh yeah it was amazing what a place to grow up. And what drove your family's move to Revelstoke? Um, Well we lost our fishing tenure on the coast so we 
So we moved inland, and then my dad moved back to Canada. He's a Canadian, so yeah, so he was in Canada, and yeah, one by one, all the kids kind of moved over over to Canada, and yeah, I love coming back every every summer and visiting my mom and my sister and coming back home in a way. It's awesome. And so you're officially a Canadian now, and you obviously represent Canada. Did you ever have any thoughts of representing New Zealand on the mountain biking scene? Yeah, I did. It was really a hard decision for me, just um, based on the support level that you get, and it was a pretty tight, tight competition there to to represent either or. So, ended up representing Canada for a lot of years. Do you consider yourself a Kanakiwi? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Your first memory of uh, riding a bike seems to be quite interesting. Your brother, who was also a very good mountain biker, had set up a, a dodgy jump on your property on the west coast, was it? Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. so he had built all these little jumps out of a piece of wood, you know, the classic kid jump on the street. And then he was hitting it all day and he thought that, oh, it'd be a good idea for little Casey to hit it at five years old or four years old or something. So he, so he just, yeah, put me on a bike and pushed me on all the way through and I went over the bars really bad. I don't really remember it too good because it was a pretty funny crash, I guess. So very exciting. Lucky it didn't put you off the sport. I know. I don't know how that happened. You must be resilient. (laughs) Yeah, something. And you love the thrill, right? The adrenaline rush? Yeah, definitely. It's it's a thrill. It's a thrill-seeker sport for sure. Traveling around the world, riding bikes, did you ever think you'd end up doing that as a six-year-old living on the west coast of New Zealand? (laughs) Um, No, I didn't really think about that until I was a little older. I mean, as as a grom, like 12, 13, yeah, there was there was a dream there to be a mountain biker, but yeah, never thought I could actually bring it through to fruition. So yeah, really stoked I'm doing it. Do you still consider yourself, you know, a half Kiwi? Do you still have, you know, links to the to the culture and, and the place here? And do you still feel like you're a half a Kiwi? Oh yeah, for sure. I can't let that part go. It's, a, it's amazing. It's such an honor to be uh, part of such an, an amazing country and and uh, yeah, always have the option to come come back and live here one day, maybe. So love it. You haven't met any uh, nice, handsome Kiwi men? <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> to entice you back to the homeland? <laughs> yeah, that'd be convincing. Better than an Australian, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, wrong breed. That's mountain biker Casey Brown talking to Joe Porter. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, you can contact us at sport at radionz.co.nz and you can follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. On behalf of the Extra Time team, I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.